to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. The place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. Calling us from California, Michael Sugru on the phone. Michael, thanks so much for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Thanks for having me. You are retired police sergeant, correct? That's correct. Now, where did you uh, retire from? I retired from the Walnut Creek Police Department, which is located in California. It's probably about 45 minutes outside of San Francisco. So Northern California. And by the way, it's a gorgeous area. I went there a long, long, long time ago. And back then I thought to myself, how can people afford to live here? It, it is outrageous. I mean, the cost of living is just through the roof. And, you know, people come from all over the world to live here. But you obviously have to have a job that's going to pay enough to afford to live in that kind of situation. I actually saw news reports. I believe we had an article or two on Law Enforcement Today. Uh, you do a search at letradioshow.com about cops living in RVs on the station house lot and then going to their home where they could afford it, which was two hours away. I have heard that. Uh, fortunately, that didn't happen in my agency, but I, I know very well, like San Jose PD, which is in the Silicon Valley, in that area specifically, the cost of living is even higher than most of the Bay Area. And that is true that oftentimes officers live in RVs, where I've heard of like three or four officers getting together and getting like a one-bedroom apartment, and they all share it just for the work days. And oftentimes, you know, you have to commute. Like even for me, for example... I commuted approximately 35 miles to work every single day. Now I have a sister who lives in Los Angeles, and she said to travel 10 miles could take an hour to two hours. So when I complain about traffic and the cost of living here on the East Coast, I'm reminded that I've got it pretty good compared to my brothers and sisters who live on the West Coast. Yes, you do. Yeah, it, it is It is very bad here, in L.A. especially. I mean, L.A. is even worse than the San Francisco Bay Area. I mean, it, the traffic is an absolute nightmare. One of the things that I always say that people have a mistaken concept of policing, due in large part to what Hollywood puts out there. Um, when I say Hollywood, I mean television, news media, social media, and movies. And one of the things that I always use as an example you watch television shows and they have a young single cop and he lives in some multi-million dollar loft apartment driving a high-end sports car. I'm thinking, where did these cats work? Because it was never like that for me, ever. Yeah, that that is definitely not reality. I mean, I've even heard of officers who still live at home with their parents. I mean, especially the young ones that are coming out of college and they're just starting out. I mean, to be able to buy your own place here takes years and years to save up. So that is absolutely not reality when it comes to law enforcement and here in california specifically before we get into the conversation i do have to say this my wife stephanie god bless her she makes me watch these television shows on hgtv 
and inevitably there'll be uh, the, the the flipping homes in uh, the, the San Francisco area, and also more towards Southern California. And the people coming to the show will say, uh, you know, I'm a video blogger. I collect rubber bands, and my budget is 1.5 million. And they're looking at a 700 square foot house. I'm thinking, what is it like out there? Is it really like that for everybody? It, it's definitely not like that for everybody, um, myself included. I live more in what would be called suburbs, and that's why I commute. And although the cost of living is high, I mean, I have a normal-sized house, and um, most of my friends live in normal-sized residences. It's just that the reality is most people have to commute from the suburbs to the big cities. And as you know, you know, the big cities pay more, so that's why people commute. You know, the law enforcement agencies in the suburbs, like where I live, they make a lot less than where I commute to. Gotcha. That's why so many people commute. So we've had many guests on the show from California, law enforcement officers that have been through horrendous situations. Before we get into your story, uh, give us a brief bird's eye view of your law enforcement career. So real briefly, um, I started out actually in the United States Air Force, and I eventually became a captain, and I worked in security forces, which that's the equivalent of military police. They deal with um, anti-terrorism, force protection, and I did that for almost six and a half years. And I was in Europe, the Middle East, South America. And in 2004, I came back to California, and that's when I started my civilian law enforcement career. I ended up going through the police academy, and I graduated December 2004. And I worked for the city of Walnut Creek. I had various assignments. I was started out as a patrol officer. Then I was a field training officer, where I trained the new officers. I was a detective in property crimes and narcotics. And then I was also actually an undercover special agent assigned to a California Department of Justice drug task force. Well, I want to thank you that, for your service. Before I, was, I forget, because I always forget to do this, thank you for your service with the military, and also thank you for your service with the police department as well. Thank you. I appreciate that, and proud to serve in both. So you did, um, what, you have, 20 years in, in law enforcement? About 21 years, correct. Okay, and you're retired now. What rank did you retire? I retired as a sergeant about a year and a half ago. Gotcha. And what are you doing now? Now I just do volunteer work. Um, I actually just started speaking at various police departments. I'm going to be speaking at conferences across the nation. I've been doing podcasts. My whole mission right now is to kind of break the stigma about post-traumatic stress and law enforcement suicide. And I'm simply just trying to give back and help others. I'm glad you brought that up, Michael, because I started in 1980, and I remember back then that we had a horrific suicide problem in law enforcement. Now, granted, we were not as connected as a society across the United States as we are now with social media, internet, and all of that, but it was well known that we had a, a huge problem with suicide as early back in the 70s as as far as back as I can remember. Uh, but for a long time, agencies didn't pay attention to this, and our communities didn't know. For example, Baltimore would have no idea what's happening in L.A., and L.A. would have no idea what's happening in San Francisco. Some in the law enforcement occupation would have an idea of what was happening, but even then, we'd have officers with suicide, and it was reported as something else, accidental discharge, and it was all kept hush-hush and, and kind of swept under the rug. You're absolutely right. And the thing is that the law enforcement suicides, it's an epidemic, and it's always been this way. The fact is, it's just now getting exposure because it's being talked about, it's being publicized, whereas before, like you said, it was hidden. And the facts are that our law enforcement 
deaths by suicide are more than doubling our line of duty deaths. Right. And every I mean, community should be aware of this. Every community across the United States, if you're saying, well, I'm not in law enforcement, no, my family is, why should I be concerned? Because you live in an area where you're served by law enforcement people, and some of the best officers are the ones who are doing this. And they're the most seasoned. They've been doing it for a long time. And when we lose someone like that, not just the human cost or the cost of them and their family, but our communities suffer as a whole as well. Absolutely. You know, I just found out about one that happened close to me about an hour from where I live, and it was a young officer, only a couple years on the job, had two young kids, the wife was pregnant. And you talk about the devastation left behind, not only for that agency and the community, but that family. It's going to affect them for the rest of their lives. It sure is. We're going to take a short break. We are talking with retired police sergeant Michael Sugru. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Want to win great prizes in awesome contests? Who wouldn't want that? It's easy. Just sign up and subscribe for the Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. We won't spam you. No more than two emails a week. I promise. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. Back to our conversation with Michael Sugru, retired police sergeant from Walnut Creek, California Police Department, correct? Correct. And you've been retired now about a year and a half? That's correct. So you did about 21 years in law enforcement. Quite often people have no concept. And and I don't talk often about what I went through in police work. First of all, it was an attorney ago. Secondly, I found that most people, let me rephrase that. Someone will come up at a barbecue. and It doesn't happen like it used to. But they'll say, hey, did you ever shoot anybody? And I, I used to be nice about it. And then I got to the point where I'd say, why would I talk about one of the worst moments of my life with a total stranger over a beer and then walk away from him quite often i say yes i have and then i walk away and i got tired of the point of, of people asking questions like that because they had no idea what the reality was like for law enforcement people have you experienced that a- absolutely and you know the number one misconception is and in part thanks to media is that officers are involved in shootings all the time and the fact is that 99.9% of police officers will never be in a police shooting. That's true. So it's ex- extremely rare. It's very rare. And then something about me must have just been, I, I recall guys saying to me jokingly in my squad, I'm not backing you up because you attract bullets and guns. You're like a gun magnet. I was in four shootings in, in right around 10 years. And the first two, another big misconception, they shot at me first. I never even fired back because... You just knew instinctively it wasn't the right thing to do for whatever reason. And the last two were different. Thank God everybody survived. But most people I know never pulled their gun except at the range to qualify yearly. You're absolutely right. What was your experience like? Did you ever have to go through something like that? So, yeah, you know, my number one, I'd say most impactful incident was a police shooting. And, you know, basically I was a brand new police sergeant. It was in the middle of the night. And a call comes out of a woman barricaded in an apartment with a subject with a knife. And I'm first on scene. As we're getting there, we're getting updates. And now there's a couple in a bedroom and there's a third party with a knife. As soon as I get on scene, I hear blood-curdling screams coming from a distance. It sounds like somebody's dying or being killed. 
at that same time, my female partner arrives, and we just start running towards the screams. We don't know where we're going, but we're running towards the screams. When we get there, we find now a silent and dark condominium with a huge window the size of a door smashed inward. Uh, We announce ourselves, nothing, no noise, no motion. We go in, we clear the downstairs. We get to the bottom of the stairs, and moments later, a subject with a large butcher knife comes out. The subject is completely non-responsive, sweating profusely, eyes wide open, just staring right through us like a zombie. I mean, it's something best described as, as out of a horror movie. I mean, it's just not real. Absolutely no response to the fact that we have our guns pointed out, that we're giving commands. And then suddenly he comes towards us with the knife raised. And by the way, we that's shoot. not uncommon. A lot of people don't realize that. You think that in normal circumstances, if a police officer points a gun at you and says, stop and drop it, you normal people go, well, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what you think everybody else does. But that's, that's not the reality of what happens in a lot of these situations. They don't respond at all, or they respond in the exact opposite. Exactly. And, you know, most times they do respond to it, but when they don't, that's very alarming, and it's, it's not normal, and that heightens the situation. In this case, we had a couple that was either dying or dead on the other side of the subject, and we had to get to them. And that's what made this circumstance so unique, is that this wasn't a guy with a knife by himself that we could just back out and leave men there and call in backup and hostage negotiators. We had people that were potentially dying, and we had to save their lives. So there's and no time for it, all the de-escalation and all the trendy terms that people love to use. There, there was no time for de-escalation. There was time for commands, and there was time to act. But, you know, things change in a, in a second, in a split second. And you have to make decisions that determine whether or not you go home to your family that night or whether people live or die. And you don't have time to sit there and analyze everything. You've got to take it all in at once and make that split-second decision that changed my life for the rest of my life. So you obviously had to make that split-second decision. You had two people dying on the other side of this armed person. They were not responding. They were armed with, and people people love to underestimate the, the damage done by a knife. Uh, something about that whole knife thing just freaks me out to no end. Well, I, I agree with you, and I've actually personally seen people survive gunshot wounds a lot more than they do stab wounds. More often than not, people that are stabbed die. They do. And they, what happens is, and I wish I could get through this to people. They, well, in Europe, they don't have that. They use the, Listen, I, I, don't, I can't speak for Europe, but if someone gets that close to me with hostile intent and they're armed with any kind of bladed weapon, it's it's ugly, ugly, life-threatening scenario. And it's, it's like a, a, a cop's nightmare. It is. And most people don't realize that knives go right through our bulletproof vests. They don't stop knives. So here you are. You're, you're stuck in a scenario. Uh, and what option did you have when you had to make the split-second decision? I had no other option but to use my firearm, and I ended up shooting. And the subject continued coming at us. A couple of the officers backed off, and another officer who tried to tase him, the taser missed. He then started to get up again holding the knife, and we had to re-engage the subject to neutralize the threat. And that's the reality of what happens. You use the terminology, and people would oftentimes think that that's something we're trained to use or the, say, shooting center of mass. Listen, I don't have time in those scenarios to aim for a hand or leg shot, and the people are moving. It's not that easy to shoot someone that's moving and threatening you 
and you're moving at the same time. It's not, and the fact is, even in this scenario, there were other officers present, and two of them missed and didn't hit him one time because it is very difficult to hit somebody that's moving, and it doesn't matter how close they are to you. It is difficult, and it's not like in the movies. It's not like the media, and like you said, you can't aim for specific body parts. You just got to aim center mass and hope that you hit them. This is one of the things I almost never say, and one of the last gunfights I was in, it was a guy who had done an armed robbery. Uh, he killed the victim. The victim had a, a hair salon in the Baltimore area, and he took the victim's car. And prior to striking me head on, he was shooting out the window with the forty-five, And I was armed with a revolver at the time. And we had a head-on collision. The guy bailed out. I bailed out. And we engaged in a gunfight. And I remember thinking, and it's, it's hard to explain, Michael, I'm sure you understand, but I remember thinking, I fired four rounds. I have no idea where they went. I don't even know if this guy's been hit. And all of a sudden, he's trying to like reload the, the 45. And I'm thinking, I'm in the middle of the street. I got no cover. I got nothing. And it's happening in milliseconds. And I ran up and tackled him. And I, what I didn't realize is the reason why it took so long for him to reload is I'd shot him in the wrist and he couldn't operate the gun properly. But there's no way of knowing that at the time. You know, it's, fun, it's funny you bring that up because in my case, I did hit him twice in the first volley of shots, but I didn't know that for weeks or months after this happened. I had no idea. People assumed that, oh, well, you fired your weapon, so you knew you hit him. No, I didn't know I hit him. It was dark. He was moving. Right. I didn't see any, any injuries initially. You know, things take time. It's, it's not like you see on TV and in the, in the movies, like you know, where these huge explosions happen and blood's going everywhere and people automatically fall to the ground. Oh, they get blasted backwards and all that other stuff that happens on television. We're talking with Michael Sugru. He's a retired police sergeant from California. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We're going to short break. We'll be right back. One of the most frequent questions we see is, where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today Podcast Network, go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. Return conversation with Michael Sugru, a retired police sergeant uh, from California. Michael, before we went to break, we're talking about an incident where you wound up having to use deadly force and, and shoot a man who was armed, I'm, I'm assuming he's a man, I don't even know if it's male or female, that was armed with a knife, Uh, and some injured people there. One of the things, before we continue on, I noticed that, and it's difficult, I find it difficult, even after all these years, to not get emotionally ramped up when I talk about it. I noticed that occurring with you. Is it difficult for you to talk about? Are you okay? You know, I'm starting to get better, but the fact of the matter is I suffered for years. I was sued federally, and it took four years to go to federal court on this, and I had to relive this deadly situation every single year all the time and it took an absolute toll on me i didn't talk about it 
when I finally did, I broke down and started crying like a baby. And, and I've worked on that. So I'm in a place now to where I can share it, I can talk about it, and I'm okay. But for so long, I just bottled it up and bottled it up and just stuffed it away in dark places. That's another thing. And I keep saying this, that people are conditioned by Hollywood. They'll see these movies. Um, I'll use Die Hard as an example or Clint Eastwood. I loved all those old movies. And, and the cop has to shoot someone and then they come up with some funny quip line and they're okay. They're drinking coffee afterwards, the next scene, and everything's fine. That's not the reality of what it's like. It's not. I mean, in fact, my marriage fell apart. I turned to alcohol, isolation, depression, cut ties with people, thought about killing myself on the job. I mean, this this thing took an absolute toll on my life and almost cost me my life, not only that night of the incident, but years after the incident. So even years after the incident, even years after surviving the initial attack, the the first responder, that law enforcement officer, is still very much, in many cases, in danger. And quite often, that danger comes from themselves. Absolutely. And that goes back to our suicide rates in law enforcement. It's absolutely epidemic. We'll talk more about that part. Because, to be honest with you, if I had the answer to that, a whole lot more people's lives would be saved. And I'd be probably rolling in, in fat city money, uh, which I, I don't have. But I think by talking about these things and, and letting people know the reality of what it's like, it, it goes a long way. So when you're in that situation, you wound up having to shoot the guy. And you said another officer went to tase him. It was ineffective. And you had to use force again. What was the final outcome, the status of that suspect? He died on scene. He, he died immediately. The second round of shots, he had devastating wounds. And he was killed instantly. And there's really no nice way of saying that. That's a very clinical, almost like testifying a court way of saying it. The reality is when it occurs for that officer on scene, in your story, in your situation, it's a far more brutal emotional incident. Is that an understatement? Well, yeah, the fact is, and in this case, we don't know why this guy did what he did. And the fact is, Good or bad, you know, we saved lives. We did the absolute right thing. But I have to live with taking somebody's life for the rest of my life. I have to live with that. And that's not easy to do. It's not. And that, that's the thing is you second guess yourself. You start wondering, what if I did this? What if I did that? You start trying to figure out, why did this person try to kill his two roommates? You know, we don't know. And even after four years of a federal lawsuit and all these expert witnesses and lab tests and interviews and... You name it, the bottom line is we don't know, we're going to never know why this guy did what he did. And, and that makes it very difficult. That makes it very tough. And, and like I said, I think about that all the time. Part of me wants to compartmentalize and put things in a proper space in my mind of why they did this. And a lot of this stuff doesn't make sense. And I remember being a rookie police and it was... I don't even recall the incident, but I was very upset about uh, someone who'd been killed. And this old timer said to me, listen, if you try to make sense out of things that don't make sense at all and have no logical explanation, you're going to drive yourself insane. And that's advice that's easier said than done. It is. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, you know, I'll just not think about it and I'll forget about it. And that'd be nice if that were true. 
But when you have constant dreams and nightmares like I've had and I still have today, it, it makes it where you have constant reminders. I mean, I can't tell you where if I see somebody wearing a belt on, or, a, sorry, a knife on their belt just out in public, I immediately get triggered. And I think right back to that knife pointed at me in that shooting. I've had that happen to me with several situations. And, and be honest, everybody I know that worked in law enforcement for a long period of time has some degree of this or another. Some more gravely affected than others. But uh, the, the old simple things we talk about all the time, I sit my back to the wall in a restaurant. I watch the door. If there's too much noise and too many people moving around and too much light uh, moving around, I get physically and mentally uncomfortable. My wife knows this, and she's like, well, I think we need to leave. Has that been your experience? I experience that on a daily basis, and, you know, it comes down to survival. We've been trained a certain way. We know that we have to always be on the lookout. We always have to be on edge. There's always a potential threat. And, you know, most of the public, I mean, I, I actually envy them because they walk around like life is great. There's no threats. There's no problems. And as law enforcement officers, we, everyone I see, I'm constantly scanning, I'm analyzing, I'm looking at hands, I'm looking at what they're wearing. Like you said, I always sit with my back to the wall facing the door. I mean, I'm always looking over my shoulder. I'm constantly on edge, and it, it doesn't go away. It doesn't matter if you're retired, if you've been on the job 30 years or one year, you always have to be on the lookout because there's always threats. It, it, it doesn't end, and when you compound those those threats and the, the training and everything else with uh, situations we've been through and close calls, uh, I'll be honest with you, Michael, I think the close calls bother me more than uh, the really, really bad situations. Like, if I had just done this slightly wrong, it could have been a really, really bad scenario. I, I actually had one of those before my shooting, and I it messed me up. And that was the first time I actually broke down as a police officer in front of other people. What was that situation like? Or what was that situation, uh, that situation about? I, I was actually undercover at the time. I looked nothing like a police officer. I mean, I looked more like a, a gangbanger. And we got a report of a house being broken into where a laser-sided revolver was taken in the residential burglary. And we ended up figuring out it was probably a high school kid that did it. And so we found out that his mom worked at a big office complex and that she would meet him every day after school. So we simply went to this place, and we were scoping out her car so we could have a plan when the guy came back to the vehicle. And like I said, I, I had earrings in. I had a goatee, shaved head. I looked nothing like a police officer. And I'm sitting there looking at this car. Next thing you know, a head pops up in the back seat, and it's this kid. And I try to talk to him. I lift up my shirt, showing my gun and my badge, and identify myself. He immediately darts out of the vehicle, and as he's running away from me, I pull out my gun, and he starts reaching into his waistband. And it turns out he had the revolver, and that's what he was reaching for. And I was a millisecond from shooting him, and it would have been justified. Thank God I didn't. Thank God, finally, after I yelled that I was going to basically kill him and a bunch of expletives I can't repeat, he dropped to the ground. And had he not done it at the point, I would have shot him. And... You know, the thing was, he was fine. He didn't get hurt. But it so bothered me that I almost, he was a kid. I almost killed this kid. Right. You know, and, and I ended up talking to him afterwards, and he was, granted, he committed a crime, but he was a person. He was respectful to me. He was apologetic. And I just couldn't stop thinking about, I almost killed this kid.
those are the kind of close calls that we lose sleep over and they happen far more often than people realize and quite often the vast majority of times like you the officers don't use deadly force because in the reality is that officers actually involved in shootings while they get the headlines especially on social media they happen very very rarely this is the law enforcement today show we're gonna take a short break we'll be right back Have you ever wanted to listen to a favorite Law Enforcement Today episode again or chat directly with John J. Wiley? Now you can. Download Podopolo for free on either app store and send John J. Wiley a DM right on the app. That's P-O-D-O-P-O-L-O, Podopolo. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. I'm John J. Wiley, retired Baltimore Police Sergeant, joined by... Michael Sugru, retired Walnut Creek, California police sergeant. Something about police talking to police is great. Then we talk about police sergeants talking to police sergeants. It's a different world. I think that one of the best things that happened to me was being promoted to sergeant, and one of the worst things that happened to me is being promoted to sergeant. It was just a totally different ball of wax. Was that your experience? It, it absolutely was, and it was actually a hard transition for me. You know, I... I Loved being a police officer. I love what I call hunting, which is being proactive, doing stops, vehicle stops, pedestrian stops, making arrests. And it took me a while to realize that that wasn't my job. That wasn't my primary function. My primary function was to supervise and train and lead other officers. And, you know, with that becomes a lot of issues. And you don't realize how many issues there are. And you have to manage all this the same time while doing your job and it's a very difficult job it is although rewarding it's it takes a lot out of you one of the things that that i am very fond of saying is we ask a lot of our law enforcement officers and rightfully so we we demand they be the best we want the most integrity we want them to be honest and professional at all times Uh, and yet quite often it's very easy to overlook the, the needs of those officers and how these incidents, the daily grind, the up and down, the stress from no stress, calm, relaxed to in a possible life or death situation where your heart rate goes crazy. It's easy to overlook the needs of those individuals. And uh, as a sergeant, I had to sit down with them many times and say, are you all right afterwards? After and no one was shot. Nothing bad happened. It was just regular stuff, regular police work. Are you okay? Do you need to decompress? And that was one of the hardest things to balance, the need of serving the community, handling all the calls, and making sure your officers are okay. You're absolutely right. Um, I unfortunately failed in that area, and I was so focused on the mission and just getting the job done that you know, oftentimes – I overlook things, and I think a lot of times as law enforcement agencies, we, you know, punish people, we write people up, we get on them, but we don't see that these could be warning signs, you know, like people being late to line up, for instance, or late to work. Well, there's probably a reason for that, but instead of, like you're saying, which is the right thing to do, hey, is everything okay at home? Are you doing okay? You know, I I failed in that area, and, and I know I could have done a lot better job. And I think that's an area as a whole that as law enforcement, we need to get better at is making sure our people are okay. And as a community, I think we need to get better. I, I see these videos all the time 
and they'll say, here's an officer that's on a call, a domestic, for example, which we, you and I both know are very, very stressful. And all of a sudden, they totally lose their cool. And they're, they're shouting and they're screaming at people and they're saying things they'd never say. And there was a time where it'd be so easy to judge them and say, well, that guy's a bad cop. There's something wrong. Let's get him off the force. Get him or her off the street. Now I look and go, is there something deeper going on? Are, are they struggling with some post-traumatic stress issues? Were they okay before? Have they been like this the entire career, or is it sudden? You're absolutely right, and the fact is, our life experiences, just as people, they affect us on the job. So, as an example, you know, I have a daughter, but before having a daughter, the kid calls didn't affect me as much. You know, when I was going through my divorce, I looked at domestic violence situations or disturbances totally different. It had an actual effect on me where I was like, wow, like I can actually see what's going on here. Whereas before it was like black and white, like, okay, somebody's going to jail, you broke the law and, and that's it. And it's, it's not like that. No, it's really not. And uh, I recall vividly a Thanksgiving where we get a call for domestic dispute with injuries and we get there and the, the man stabbed his wife because she wanted to lead the family prayer at the Thanksgiving dinner. And you're thinking, how? And I remember being like 22 years old. I didn't know anything from anything at that point. I thought I did. How do people do this to so-called people they love over what seems to be so insignificant? And you and I both know alcohol is involved. A lot of things are usually involved. But here you have someone that's in a life or death scenario because they want to lead the family prayer. Exactly. And you know, we don't realize that everyone has stuff going on in their lives. And sometimes the smallest thing will be the tipping point that puts somebody over the edge. I mean, look at road rage incidents these days where complete strangers end up killing each other because they got cut off. Something that makes no sense at all. And that's something that our, our law enforcement people have to deal with all the time. And you try to deal with the facts. I remember the old show, the facts, talking about the facts back when I was a kid, way before your time. But there's a lot more to it than just the facts. And when you get back to domestic disturbance, and you do wind up having to put kefs on someone and take them away quite often, not all the time, the person they victimized would then turn around and assault you. Absolutely. I mean, domestic violence calls are the most deadly calls you can go to. And like you said, you may be trying to help the victim, and next thing you know, the victim's trying to kill you. Yeah, that makes no sense. And the other one that I found equally as frustrating, and I think you're helping me therapeutically, was that when you have quite often it's the female spouse that's been brutalized repeatedly and you can't get them to prosecute. You can't get them to cooperate. And you know that it's going to continue to happen. It's going to get worse. You do everything you can. And, and sometimes they are killed. And it's, it is devastating for that post officer that winds up going there and couldn't save that life. Couldn't get the person to make the right decision. Absolutely. And, you know, the same thing happens with child abuse. And there's only so much we can do. And you may put someone in jail, but they're out, you know, the next day or a couple days later, and you can't be at their house 24-7. And next thing you know, you hear something bad happens, and now you have to live with that guilt on what could I have done differently? How could I have saved this person? So you've been through all the things that so many law enforcement officers like myself have been through. You've been through a use of deadly force where you wound up shooting and having to kill a guy, and you had to go through court and civil suits and all the things that go along with that and you mentioned earlier that it started having very negative effects on your personal life drinking isolating depression 
your ruination of your marriage. How did you get to where you're at today from that point, from the, those dark days? You know, honestly, it took a very tragic event. Uh, one of my best friends, he was a Vietnam veteran, but he was a 35-year reserve officer with my department, and we rode together for 14 years. He tried to kill himself when I was on duty, and thank God he's alive today. But about a month after that happened, after I'd been suffering for almost four years, I broke down in a parking lot and for two hours and cried like a baby in my car. And finally, I called my lieutenant, my watch commander, and said, I need to get help. And the bottom line was, after what my friend tried to do to himself, I told myself there's no way I can ever put my young daughter through that. I can't let her see that. I can't let her deal with that. And so I got help for me, but for her. And I'm glad you did. How would you describe your life now? It is night and day. I mean, I I can't tell you how much different I am now. Like, I, I look at life totally different. I look at, like, I have actually have a second chance at life. Um, I have a great relationship with my daughter. I've got a supportive girlfriend. I've got supportive family doing well health-wise. I'm, I'm now devoted to helping other people. And the reason why I'm doing that is because I'm in such a good place. And it took years of work to get there. But life is very good for me right now. And now I'm just trying to give back and help others. By the way, for anyone who's listening, if you know someone who's going through these sort of things, military, first responder, firefighter, law enforcement officer, uh, have them contact the folks at Transformations Treatment Center, 888-991-9725, online at transformationstreatment.center. Got a great program called Help for Our Heroes. Uh, That's just phenomenal. And by the way, everybody else has got issues they can help with that as well. So check them out, transformationstreatment.center. If you've got questions, they have the answers. So you spend part of your time now trying to give back and help others that are going through this. What are you doing? Um, I just recently started speaking at various police departments. So I'm going to their training days, speaking to their officers, talking about my personal experience, about what I went through about my recovery, more importantly, about the mistakes I made and so that they don't make the same mistakes and that they can get help sooner than later. Um, I'm actually going to be speaking at a statewide conference as a keynote opening speaker. I'm doing podcasts, which is why I'm talking to you. And so I'm just trying to get the message out there to as many people as I can, whether it's on the radio like this or whether it's face-to-face um, that's what I'm trying to do. I think I, I truly believe that they need to hear it from a peer. We have this thing called street cred. And the fact is, you know, they don't want to read about something in a book. They don't want to hear from, you know, just a clinician who studied at school. They want to hear from a fellow police officer who's been through it. And they want to hear what happened to them and how they made it out the other side. And that's where I come in. Michael, thanks so much for doing that. And thanks so much for coming on the show and talking all about it. Very much appreciated. Absolutely. My pleasure. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.